you'll stand with me, let's do a call to worship. You'll see it there in your bulletin. I'll read the light print if you'll join together with me in the bold print here this morning. Praise the Lord. Let the Lord's name be praised. We have gathered to praise our gracious God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Continue to pray for Phil and Karina as they try to transition and move toward missions that you would pave the way, that you would open doors, that you would provide courage and stamina and, and give Phil the ability to focus in the months to come for ordination and transition and for Karina to be able to, to help with that and support the load while he's busy, that, Lord, you would strengthen her. For Bill and Kim, as Bill continues to do treatments and get test results, that, Lord, you would continue to be with them. For Dan, as he prepares for surgery, that uh, he would go through all of his tests, that he would be able and that they would be able to help him. Continued uh, support for Carol and for Harley, Lord, as they continue to to strive together going forward, that you would strengthen her, uh, give her the stamina needed, and that you would strengthen Harley and give him the desire to want to be stronger and to continue moving forward and uh, to find strength. We pray for Stacy, Jim and Jackie Box, youngest, uh, Lord, just again for healing and what they're going through in their life. We pray for uh, Shalia, uh, the Box daughter also, uh, for these in Akron, Ohio. For Cindy Roseanne Jones' sister, we lift her up as she too is going through treatment, Lord, that you would just provide as well the strength that she needs uh, to get through it. And for Katie, friend of Dale and Stacy, as she too faces it. Lord, we uh, lift up the Cheslers as they too uh, are facing it. So Lord, we have so many that we're lifting up this morning personally, Lord, just for health and for direction and for courage and Lord, we know there's so many other things we could bring before you this morning, but it's our heart's desire to bring our family before you. Lord, to know that it's your will that's being accomplished in their lives. Lord, use us where we can be used to help accomplish your will. And Lord, again, as we ask these things, we do it only as we come to the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who taught us how to pray in the scriptures, saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our confession of faith comes once again to us from the Westminster Larger Catechism. So let me read the question and then let's respond together. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace worked in the hearts of sinners by the Spirit and the Word of God. By it, sinners recognize not only how dangerous it is to commit sin, but also how filthy and hateful they are to God. Understanding that God is merciful to those who repent, sinners suffer such deep sorrow for and hate their sins so much that they turn away from all of them and turn to God, attempting to walk continually with him in every way according to this new obedience. Amen. 
and we have this prayer of confession before us that we can corporately together pray and acknowledge that we, we too have sinned, we too needs, need God's grace. So please pray with me out loud this prayer. Father God, we confess we have not loved you as you have loved us. You call us, but we do not listen. We confess that we have walked away from those in need. We are wrapped up in our own concerns. We have overlooked evil prejudice and greed. Father, we repent in spirit and truth, admit our sin, and ask for forgiveness through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. And as we do that with sincerity in our hearts and resolve to live this godly life looking to Jesus, the promise comes to us from Romans 8, 34 and 35. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Our confidence is in Jesus, the one who intercedes for us. We come to him again with empty hands asking him to fill it and bringing to God the righteousness of Jesus Christ in our behalf, and we have the assurance that we're forgiven. So this is something to rejoice in and be thankful for and to live our lives based upon and dependence upon Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. Now we have the privilege to worship the Lord through giving, so I'm going to ask those who are going to be helping us receive the morning's offering to come forward as I pray for the offering. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, you love us so much, and you are our great provider. As we prayed earlier, Lord, we do pray that your kingdom would come, that you would bring peace, even, Lord, as we uh, weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. Bring peace in our community, bring peace in our world, and may the gospel go forth in power and in the Holy Spirit. Lord, may these gifts and tithes and offerings be used for your glory and for the further furthering of the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name that we all pray. Amen.
Amen. You may be seated, and thank you again to everyone who helps with our worship, and uh, I know we see our musicians up front each week, but we, what we don't sometimes see is all that goes on behind the scenes, and so uh, it takes many, many people to help. I know in the back back there we have an entire table of screens and the video and all that's being recorded, and we have the sound team that's back there in the back. And so many times I ask you that if you appreciate our musicians, would you say amen? And if you appreciate them, say amen. amen. But let's also recognize the others. If you appreciate the behind the scenes, would you please say amen? amen. There you go. That's right. I knew you'd be rowdy today because you just want to get out for food. I knew that's what it is. I, I can't keep you settled down. We're in Hebrews, and this morning is kind of a opportunity for the preacher of the book of Hebrews to give us the last and final warning that's in the book. I know Gerald Borchert many years ago, professor at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, back in the 90s, wrote a book called Assurance and Warning. It was a commentary on Hebrews to remind us that we have all this assurance because of what Jesus has done for us in an ultimate sacrifice, but that he constantly warns us to make sure that we are under the blood of that sacrifice. And here in chapter 12, we get the last of the final warnings that come alongside a wonderful assurance that this morning we said, as I title it, faith worship is only because we're now living by faith. And what a comparison that I want to share with you this morning in this short section about two mountains. Now, we have to take for granted the second mountain. It's not told us exactly. We take for granted those things. But listen as I read to you from chapter 12, beginning in verse 18 of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 12, 18. For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to a Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel." See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens." This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence 
and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. You know, you put all that together and you ask, man, what is he summarizing and what is he putting together and what are we talking about thunders and mountains and not able to touch and the things that are earthly and that against the spiritual? I can only take you back in time and I'll summarize quickly that we're comparing the two forms of worship that take place in the, place in the hearts of God's people over time. The first one is there that we go back, that we would call it there as, as the mountain where Moses would lead them, Mount Sinai, the references to Exodus and to the beginning of Deuteronomy, where this mountain that they came to, to or, in order to receive the revelation of God and to find his instruction was a mountain in which the people were unable to even touch because of God's holiness. They were unable to approach him. They were kept at a distance even so scary was the time that as the trumpets would sound and the voices would be heard, Moses himself, who he writes this, which you won't find in this story, but in the Septuagint is when he says that even Moses was terrified. How in the world do we approach a God who says to us, you must be holy when we know we're not holy? How do you approach a God in worship, and how do you celebrate if you're not sure someone's going to be struck dead, if even an animal were to touch it? The distance that was created, the zones that were placed up, it was only obvious by the end of the book of Hebrews that without Jesus Christ, you are to keep your distance from a holy God. Without Jesus Christ, don't even think about approaching him. Without an offering that is an all-sufficient sacrifice, you will die in your sins. What changes the worship from Mount Sinai is that we are told here that we have not come to that kind of a mountain, a mountain that can be touched. We are now at a mountain that is celebrated in the heavenlies, the ones that we find in Revelation 5 and Revelation 6. We find ourselves in an innumerable amount of angels gathered around the throne. When we worship today, it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's now faith worship, faith in the Son, Jesus Christ, and what he has accomplished. We gather together to sing amongst the heavenly choirs, the crowds. This is only a foretaste of what we're going to spend eternity doing. You may not realize that, but you could flip back to the book of Revelation in your Bible and go to chapter 5 for just a moment. It's a wonderful book if you've never read it through. But in Revelation 5, we get this story about what the writer of Hebrews writes. He, the writer John says in verse 11, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Do you see the image of the new Jerusalem, the one that we see in Revelation, the Jerusalem that is coming down out of heaven? That is the context of this last and final warning. He's writing to us saying, let me give you these characteristics you must understand between the difference of worshiping in Judaic style and the difference in worshiping in a faith style. One who would put all their efforts and work in a system that God ordained first. Please don't look back at Judaism and say that it was corrupt in its ways, that it was horrible in its accomplishments, because it was given to us by God. 
but it was given to us to show us what we would need in the future, to show us that we could not make it on our own, to show us that our worship today should be a foretaste around the throne of the heavenly of heavenlies, that when we gather together today to sing and to celebrate and to lift him up, it should look no different because we come under the blood of Christ. We come cleansed. We come ready to worship as if we were numbered amongst the myriads and myriads of angels and the elders, which is exactly where the writer tells us we're going to be. In one sense, he wants to simply say, why not get used to it now? Because this is what it's going to be like for the rest of eternity. So let me take you on a journey quickly as I can this morning. I've tried to put it in words. I'm one of those crazy people that like to put words together to help us memorize things and put them together. So I'm going to take you on a journey through this passage and hope I can exposit some of it interpret it for you, and help you put it into practice of what the writer is saying about this text. The difference between the worship of the Mount Sinai and the worship that we have now on Mount Zion is faith. Being made perfect through the blood of Christ and how it changes us. And how is that possible? First, let me start with saying this. It's because we have an unchangeable God. Verse 18 begins the whole thing by simply telling us, we have not come to what may be touched. It's no different, though. Even though we're at a mountain now that is taking place by faith, our worship now is trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's gathered around the throne. It's the angels and the elders and all the spirits that have gone on before us. Folks, this is a time, and I can't preach revelation to you this morning, but it's the time in which when we die in this world and our spirits ascend and they gather around the thrones, we have yet to receive our resurrected bodies. We've yet to receive the eternal state in those bodies in which we will worship. But that doesn't mean we're not still worshiping around the throne with the myriads of angels and the elders and the witnesses and those that have gone on before us. Folks, Paul makes it clear to be absent from the body is to be present with who? The Lord. And we begin worshiping the moment we leave this place. We find that place that is not touched by hands. The new Jerusalem. The city that we're told will be remade by God with bodies that have been recreated over time. Resurrected to serve him faithfully. And why? Because the same God that expected us to be holy back then is the same God that expects us to be holy today. The problem of it is, many of us think that because God has been so gracious, you see, now if we don't come to the worship service with the right attitude, we're not struck dead. If we come to the altar and we know we have problems that we haven't tried to attend, he doesn't strike us dead. When we know we have our own issues and things that need to be worked out and we come before him to lift our voices, he doesn't ignore us, cast us out, and strike us dead. You see, that's Mount Sinai. That's the place in which God made it clear that nobody approaches me when they're not prepared. Nobody gets to have access to me. Nobody can come close without being made perfect. And yet today, because of Jesus Christ... Because your sins have been covered, 
your conscience has been cleansed, and the punishment for your sin has been placed on Jesus, we sometimes lose the importance of worship. And sometimes worship gets tainted because we have open access to a worship of Zion where we can come boldly to the throne of grace even when it's not right. You see, we have an unchangeable God. He's never going to say we can't be holy and we shouldn't be holy and that we won't be holy. He'll never allow us to be in his presence without being made perfect, without the spirits being made right, without the witnesses being rewarded, without the myriads of angels all coming into context. And that's the context of faith worship. We come under the blood of Christ, all of us equal, all gathered around the throne so that we can celebrate the one who deserves to be honored. I hope you came this morning for more than just earthly food, but to know that your spirit will be fed by an unchangeable God who wants you to leave this place holy. Not only is it an unchangeable God, but the verse goes on to tell us we have an uncomparable worship style with these people. Listen to what it says when he begins to tell us in verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. We're not trying to celebrate a, a God who has been sacrificed or a God who is a statue or an idol that has been prepared or the presence of something that would remind us. We're in the presence of a living God, listening to every word, watching every circumstance, hearing every prayer. We're in the presence of the almighty living God, and he simply says this, the heavenly Jerusalem with these angels gathering together in the assembly of the firstborn. Oh, I could give you all kinds of words together of what is meant by all these gatherings, of these words that would be accomplished. I don't want to bore you with all of them that goes on, but it's such a terrifying place that Moses goes. It's the word that is used, phoberon there, that actually means a fear instilling. To go back to the old way of worship, you come in fear. Well, what if I come today and I don't have the right thing to say? What if they call on me to pray? What if they call on me to read scripture? What if they ask me to take the offering? What if they ask me what last week's sermon was about? What if they ask me if I did my Sunday school lesson? Folks, we're coming in fear. Those are the kind of things that we think about in practicality. What is it that I'm supposed to have done and bring to God so that I can be acceptable, so that worship can be right? That's not faith worship. We come now because we have nothing to bring. And we have everything to receive from Jesus Christ in this uncomparable worship with all that is taking place here in this heavenly Jerusalem. Here in this place that we now recognize as being the place that God has prepared for us. To this mountain that is a mood of joy. We have come, drawing near. That's the word. Prosorchomai is the word that is used. If you have a translation from the New American Standard, it looks like the future tense. It has a lot of L's in it because it repeats to be in the future tense. So it looks like this word, pros ek leluthesitai. It's really just the future case or the sense of what is telling us for the word prosorchomai of drawing near. That's the actual word that he's trying to tell us. We have drawn near to the mountain. You must understand that connection. What the writer is saying is at Mount Sinai, we could not what? Draw near. 
And here we're getting the actual words that are saying, no, now you are supposed to what? Draw near. You see, faith worship is designed around Jesus Christ. We no longer have reasons to stay away. It's an uncomparable worship. It's not that we have things to hide, things we haven't accomplished. You should wake up every Lord's Day thinking to yourself, how close can I be to the one who's forgiven me? That's the context of worship. An unchangeable God who puts us in a context of worship that's uncomparable to any other. I'm not here to knock the style of worship and the kinds of songs and the activities that happen, but I am one that believes in a regulative principle. I do think there are things that God requires of us. I do think worship ought to be orderly after what God asks for, not just what we think he would allow. And I know there's debate on those. Today we could get into all kinds of conversations on the styles of worship and what we call them. One of the aspects that still goes around today is to be seeker-sensitive, we call that, to be open to the lost, to allow others to come. Folks, th that's okay, but let me ask you this. On Mount Sinai, would you approach God in an unholy manner, knowing that you would be struck dead? And yet, just because we're under the grace of faith, would we still taint our worship and not expect it to be holy in what God requires today? Sometimes we try to do things so that others outside will feel comfortable. Oh, I would encourage all of you this morning that when you gather around the throne of heaven with the myriads and myriads of angels, with the elders that are there, and the witnesses, the martyreos that are gathered around the throne. There won't be any outsiders telling us how to worship around the throne. There won't be those that haven't been made perfect. There won't be those who haven't been covered in the blood because worship is designed in faith. It's for God's people to come to him. Oh, I'd be the first to tell you, please reach the lost. Share your faith. Be salt to a world that needs it, light to a darkness that seems to be winning. Bring peace to a chaos that's running rampant. You are called to go out and share your faith. But let's not compromise faith worship to get that done. That just makes your job easy because you can throw it on me. Oh, I want you to do your job. I want you to share your faith. And I want you to invite people to church. But I also want the world to see that faith worship, centered and focused on Jesus Christ, should never be compromised to make someone else feel good. We have an unchangeable God. We have an uncomparable worship style that others may not recognize. We want people when they come here to feel at odds. I say that gently because if you're here visiting with us, we don't want you to feel at odds with us. But you might be a, a visitor saying sometimes, I've never heard that before. I'm not sure what's expected in that before. And I hope that our people demonstrate to you what holiness is, what graciousness is, what gratitude is. I hope they begin to demonstrate that to you because it's uncomparable with the world. And it's uncomparable. Why? Because we have an unbreakable covenant by the Father himself. That's what verse 24 reminds us. And this Jesus, Jesus, who is the mediator of the new covenant, sprinkled with his blood, speaks better than that of the blood of Abel. 
We find ourselves now realizing that we have a covenant in which God is faithful to us. Our worship is here. Our worship is taking place because of God. Not because of what we've made it, but because what God requires of us. We have an unbreakable covenant that he's made with us, not because of our faithfulness, but because of his. Timothy reminds us that even when we are faithless, God remains what? Faithful. Faithful to that covenant to bring forth all of those in this heavenly firstborn realm. Folks, that's a wonderful word in verse 23 when we talk about the assembly gathering together. If you were to go back into the Old Testament, the word kahal is the word for assembly. As it's translated into the Septuagint and into the New Testament, it comes from the word ecclesia, which is the word for what? Church. Ecclesiology, it's the word for the church. The assembly and the gathering together of believers have always been the church. God's people always gathered together. An unchangeable God who's always asked for this uncomparable worship because he has this unbreakable covenant to redeem his people through his blood. Oh, this prototokon, if you wish, the word that they get for firstborn can be argumentative in a lot of ways, but what's clear is that it's in the plural. Do you know who the firstborn in heaven are? You'll read that as it says here, we have come to the mountain. We're in the firstborn who are, not the firstborn, in which the verb indicates very clearly that it's a plural case. Do you know who the firstborn are? You've always heard it said that Jesus the firstborn going forward, Jesus, the one and only begotten. But when we get to heaven, we have the many firstborns. Do you know who they are? They're the children of God. They're the ones who have become like their brother, Jesus Christ, the ones that are co-inheriting all that Jesus gets because you get to have what Jesus gets to have because he's gone on to prepare the place for you. And now you too treat it as the firstborn, the plural of all those gathered together around the throne. Why? Because God is faithful and he's made a covenant with us. And he's made a covenant If I remind how John writes it, he would not lose one that the Father has given to me. If you're here this morning and you've called upon the name of Jesus Christ, you've trusted in his blood, his work on the cross, his life for you, there's an unbreakable covenant that Jesus has made with the Father that says, I will never lose one. That gathering around the throne in heaven, that place of heavenly worship, that place where we're gathered with all of the angels and the elders and the witnesses who've gone before us, the spirits who have been made perfect, listen to the words that are there, is because of an unbreakable covenant and faithfulness of Jesus Christ, not you. We worship this morning because of him, because God is unchangeable, because our worship, it's there, it's uncomparable to any other, and we have a Jesus who will never break his promises. Oh, he goes on to tell us over and over, this mediator of a new covenant sprinkled that we see better than the blood of Abel. Isn't that amazing last chapter when the writer takes us back to the story of Cain and Abel? 
And we are told that Abel's blood speaks out for revengeance. That his brother Cain had killed him. And that his blood would still speak to the father and cry out that things ought to be made right. This wasn't fair. This wasn't done right. And his blood cries out. And we're now told this, that we don't compare to the blood of Abel because now in faith worship, we're not worried about the blood of Abel. We're worried about the blood of who? Jesus Christ. We now don't have a blood that's crying out for vengeance. We have a blood that's crying out for forgiveness, for repentance, and for restoration. We're under a faith worship that's not about getting even. It's about getting right. It's about being restored. It's about being reconciled to the Father. This is what faith worship is all about, doing what it takes to be right. This morning, I encourage you, it's not a cry for vengeance around the throne in heaven. It's a cry about reconciliation, about how we can be made right. Oh, he begins to remind us over and over again, the Spirit's made perfect. Folks, again, I take you to Revelation. If you go to chapter 6, we're reminded that these are our Old Testament saints. This is how he gathers together the assembly of the old with the ecclesia, the church of the new, and we wrap them together in one because all of us look forward in faith and we have a gathering around the thrones of heaven in which whether they were Old Testament saints or New Testament saints, we're gathered together around the throne in heaven, made perfect only by the blood of Christ. As they looked forward to the blood of Christ, we look back to the blood of Christ, and we are made perfect around his throne. This morning, I encourage you here at worship, is it the blood of Christ that brings you here? Is it the blood of Christ that makes you perfect. This mediator of a new covenant provides us one more thing that is so important. Because of this unbreakable covenant that he gathers us together, he reminds us in these last verses of 27 and 28, once more, this comes clear back, if you wish, from the writings of the Old Testament, some of the crying out that takes place in our minor prophets about the shaking of the heavens, the earth, and the seas once more indicates the removal of the things that have been made, the things that are impermanent. Folks, we have a kingdom. We have a place. We have a new Jerusalem. We have a Mount Sion. We have an eternal home in the heavens that will never be shaken. But there will come one more shaking. And he will shake us. We are told through the gospels, he will sift us. Like wheat, chaff, the winds. There will be a shaking of everything that has been created that is not permanent that was only provisional in its making to make sure that those who are around the throne in heaven are the ones that belong. And you must ask yourself this morning, am I part of this unshakable kingdom? Mm 
just what in my heart, just what in my mind needs to be shaken, needs to come loose, and needs to fall through. We worship in the presence of Mount Zion, the heavenly of heavenly sanctuary, where we are around the throne of the one who has given us an unbreakable covenant and is the mediator, an uncomparable worship to anything you can imagine because we have an unchangeable God who expects and demands holiness of us all. And then through that unshakable time, look at verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Man, if the punishment on the earthly Mount Sinai was death, I can only imagine if you refused the one who is speaking from heaven now, it would be no different. It would be no different. And so finally, we have an unbearable consequence if we reject him. If you're here this morning and you have rejected Jesus Christ, I can only tell you that you will be, not be a part of this unshakable kingdom, but you will be part of an unbearable consequence that follows. Eternal separation from the Father, a judgment in a situation that cannot change, and a reminder in Haggai chapter 2, once again, that there will be a shaking of heaven and earth and the seas. And finally, let me just say this. With all of this in mind, not the Mount of Mount Sinai, but of Mount Zion, an unchangeable God who has allowed us to approach his throne, to be pleasing and acceptable. That's the word that is used. You arrest us. That is the word that is used to be acceptable or well-pleasing as you speak about it as we come to the Lord. In verse 28, about God who is acceptable or well-pleasing worship. The last thing I want to share with you is what it says in verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful. Oh, if I was put it all together and finish, we have an unchangeable God who has patterned out for us an uncomparable worship to anything else. And it's because we have an unbreakable covenant with the mediator, Jesus Christ, who provides an unshakable kingdom. Nothing in it will ever be loosed. It is forever and those that don't make it will have an unbearable punishment to face. And so how can those of us who are here to worship, my last point, be ungrateful? How could we be ungrateful for all that God has done? Oh, wherever you are this morning, Verse 28 makes it clear, therefore, let us be grateful that we have been chosen. 
We have been set aside by the King of kings and Lord of lords, covered by his blood, reconciled with the Father, and worshiping already as a precursor to the throne of grace where we are worshiped forever. And yet, we could still be ungrateful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that you remind us as we look at these mountains that it doesn't change who you are. Father, as our Old Testament saints looked forward to the time in which the reality would come through a Messiah, Lord, we too look back to the Messiah that has already come, that we can all be gathered together as an assembly, a kahal, to the church, the ecclesia around the throne where we worship you forever. Forgive us, Father, where we have failed, where we have fallen and sinned. And Lord, more than anything else, help us to not be ungrateful for all you have done. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You would receive the benediction. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And God's children said, Amen. Amen. Have a great Lord's Day.